Let me ask you, if you would, please, to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Actually, Mark chapter 1, and then we'll go to chapter 15. Since we are in the beginning of the gospel according to Mark, I thought it would be helpful for us to fast forward to the end. Uh, I don't think there's anyone here tonight who has never heard about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ nor the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's not as though you're just dying to know how the gospel according to Mark ends. You already know how it ends. Uh, But that's the Christian life. We know a lot of things already. And the object is to sink those things down into our hearts deeper and deeper, to press that knowledge in by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I thought it would be helpful then as we are in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark to look at the end so that way we make sure that we do well to keep the end in mind as we work our way through. Uh, I wanted to remind you of the first verse of the Gospel according to Mark, something we covered two weeks ago now. But I thought it would be worth reminding you of Mark's entire premise, the entire point of his gospel. Verse 1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I won't explain that in the depth that I did previously, but just rather a, a sort of brief flyover, just a few things to point out to you. Mark reminds us that this is the beginning of something wonderfully new, and it's specifically the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You remember what that word gospel means. It means good news. And you remember that that good news was most often in those days proclaimed as one army had won a battle against another army and a runner would be sent forth to the village ahead of them because they were waiting on the edge of their seats to discover if they needed to hightail it out of there because the bad guys won or if the good guys won and they were about to celebrate and enjoy themselves. And so the runner would come back and proclaim, gospel, gospel. And the village, of course, would break out into a celebration. And so this is the gospel, the good news, specifically the good news of Jesus, which stood in contrast to, in those days, the good news of Caesar, and the good news of everything else that stood in place of pretending and proclaiming to be good news. But this is the good news of the man who is named Jesus, a man who last week we saw was baptized, just like any other ordinary Jew at his time. A man who was not particularly recognized except for a few moments, but a man who most people, according to John 6, followed because of what he could give to them, not necessarily because of who he really was. But as we'll see, there were some faithful who followed him even though they weren't quite sure exactly who he really was until he would later tell them after he rose again from the grave. And so it's the gospel of Jesus. And then Christ, you remember, is not his last name, but his title. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, which points us all the way back to God's covenant with David. A covenant that God had made to David to tell him that he would have an offspring that would forever sit on the throne of his, God's, kingdom. And so Israel was longing to see who this Christ was, who this Messiah was. And so every time a new king was anointed, they wondered, could this be the Messiah, the Christ? Because David himself would have been a Christ, not, of course, the Christ, but a Christ, meaning he was anointed as the king of Israel. 
But they longed for and looked for the king of Israel, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so Mark makes it crystal clear, he's here. This is him. And then the son of God, of course, is a reference to his his divine title. The fact that he, in the Godhead, is the son. Equal with God the Father, equal with God the Spirit, The Son of God is his position within the Trinity, within the Godhead. And so Mark makes it crystal clear who this Jesus is, but as you move through the gospel, it gets a little clouded at times. They weren't really quite sure what to do with him. Of course, when he did amazing things, everybody loved him. But when he said hard things, they didn't like that so much. And so with that reminder in your minds now, turn now to to Mark chapter 15. We're not scheduled to get to this section of Mark until something like May 24th, 2023. So you will forget everything that I say by then. And it will be funny if we actually make it there by then. I want to do a flyover of Mark chapter 15 verses 1 to 39 as we go back in time nearly 2,000 years ago to a Friday, which is why the church celebrates the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and remembers and honors the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on Friday because it happened on Friday. And so this is a Friday long, long ago. The mock, the bogus trial of Jesus has already taken place. It's already in the midst of happening. He stood before the Jewish council and they've contrived all of their bogus details against him and now they bring him before Pilate. As we look at this particular passage, verses 1 to 39, I think it breaks down easily into three parts. And these three parts present to us Jesus, the Son of God. And really the overall lesson to see And as Mark so clearly does all throughout his gospel, just as the other gospel writers do, the lesson to think about is how will I respond to the Son of God? So first of all, when it comes to Pilate in these first 15 verses, there's this meeting between Jesus and Pilate. Pilate keeps popping back up. Of course, he was important. But first of all, in these first 15 verses, I want us to think about the Son of God considered. The Son of God considered. And I want you to pay special attention to Pilate and his reaction to Jesus, the Son of God. Verses 1 to 5, first of all, show Jesus just before Pilate. So let's start there. And as soon as it was morning... The chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate, of course, was the the governor of the region. They could do nothing to Jesus without the permission of Pilate. They certainly could not crucify Jesus without the permission of Pilate. And so they go to Pilate. Verse 2, and Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? By this time, Pilate understood the accusations against him. 
Pilate had been presented with the case. He had heard all the details. And so he just simply turns to Jesus and asks him a question. Is what they're saying about you really true? Except that's not what he said, is it? Functionally, it's what he said, of course. But what he said was something like, are you the Christ? Who was the Christ going to be? The king of the Jews. And so you see the very first verse of the Gospel of Mark played out right in front of us. Are you the king of the Jews? We weren't there. But you have to wonder. What was going on in Pilate's mind? As he's heard the case, as he's seen the man, no doubt he would have heard of Jesus, I would assume, because he was quite popular. If you could make dead people get back up, if you could restore sight to the blind, if you could multiply food to feed thousands, you would be popular too. So Pilate most likely had heard of Jesus and now he stands face to face with him and he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And it continues, and he answered him, you have said so. Which is a direct answer, but it's also a bit of an indirect answer. He doesn't say, yes, I am, but he certainly does not say, no, I am not. Functionally, he says, yes, I am, but he said, you have said so. There's an interaction here between Jesus and Pilate. Jesus is making it crystal clear to Pilate who he is, but Jesus knows that Pilate is simply just considering him. Hmm, this guy's interesting. I've heard some pretty cool stories about him. Now I actually get to talk to him. I wonder who he really is. And it continues in verse 3, and the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate, at least in Mark's gospel, we know from John's gospel, for instance, that there was a more of an interaction here, but we want to be faithful to the writer's original intent, and Mark, just as he does throughout the rest of his gospel, sort of flies over the details, because there's a bigger picture he's painting for us. So in Mark's gospel, Pilate asks him one question, Jesus says one answer, and then the chief priests just go off. They accuse him of many things. Verse 4 says, and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? Now, imagine yourself in a situation where you were on trial, a, a trial like this nonetheless, A trial where you knew down in your bones that you were innocent. You had not done anything to deserve this trial. And yet, there's a horde of people around you who have falsely accused you and continue to pour out false accusations to you, about you, to the one who can actually do something about it. How would you respond? I think I would probably at least say, no, I didn't. I didn't do any of those things. 
But how does Jesus respond? Verse 5 says, Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. He's considering who this man is. He's wondering, is he really the king of the Jews? And then he sees his character shine forth. Character that we know from 1 Peter chapter 2, for instance, was one of total and complete trust and surrender to his father. Faced with the ultimate injustice, the just one kept his mouth closed. This was, of course, in fulfillment of what Isaiah the prophet had written. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse, 30, verse 7, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus could have gotten out of this at any moment. With his words, certainly with his divine power but he didn't say anything. And so the consideration then continues in verses 6 to 15. We see the crowd demand Pilate hand him over to be crucified. Verse 6 says, Now at the feast, he, Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Pilate was no dummy. He was a fool. But he was no dummy. He saw right through the false accusations of the chief priests. He could smell their jealousy. He knew that this man was totally innocent. He had done nothing. And the only reason that the chief priests wanted to get rid of him was because he had stolen some of their attention. Who was in charge before Jesus showed up? The guys called the chief priests. And now all of a sudden... The ones who loved the best seat in the house, the ones who loved to be first, are kicked to the curb. Their attention is diminished. We all know what happens when someone who loves attention stops getting it. When they're little, they throw a temper tantrum. When they're big, they throw a temper tantrum. It's just more destructive and even more evil. And so they throw a temper tantrum. Verse 13, and they cried out again, or rather verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. You think they knew what they were doing? They knew exactly what they were doing. There's one man here who makes the decision. There's a massive crowd here whom Caesar himself has charged this one man to make sure doesn't get too out of hand. And so they turn to the massive crowd and they stir them up, forcing the one man's hand. He's got to deal with the problem. 
In verse 12, And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man who you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. There were at least two things Pilate knew about Jesus. He knew that the leaders were jealous of him, and that's why he was on trial. And he knew he was innocent. He asked them, what has he done? Implying, of course, he had not seen sufficient evidence to prove that he had done a single thing wrong. Crucifixion, of course, was the the worst of the worst punishment. It was reserved for the worst criminal offenders. It was not only the most torturous, the most painful, but it was also the most humiliating way to die. We see pictures and we see movies of things like a loincloth wrapped around Jesus as he hung on the cross. Well, there was no loincloth. He was stripped down completely, hung up for the whole world to see, gasping for breath until there was no more breath. And oftentimes, the Romans would leave the body on the cross to decay To send a message to their enemies and to anyone who would try to break the law, don't you dare cross us. So Pilate understood what was going on here. He could see behind the veil, but what does he do? He hands Jesus over, and why does he do it? Because he wished to satisfy the crowd. See, Pilate was considering who the Son of God, who the King of the Jews was. But it turns out what he thought was more important was not who this man was, the King of the Jews, the very Son of God. What was more important to Pilate was what people thought about him. I don't know, is that a struggle today, perhaps? We know it is, isn't it? Will we choose friendships over Jesus? Family over Jesus? Careers over Jesus? Anything over Jesus? And so we see the Son of God considered. And then secondly... Verses 16 to 32, we see the Son of God rejected. It got worse. Verses 16 to 20 tell us about what the Roman soldiers did to him when they got their hands on him. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. My Bible has a little footnote down there that explains to you that a battalion was usually about 600 men. How many people would it take to beat Jesus? Really just one, 
right? Why did he call a whole battalion? Because this was a game for them. Why, when there's a fight on the playground, perhaps, do people run to it and watch? Sometimes someone steps in and defends someone who might be being beaten, but typically we gather around and we watch. It's the sinful nature of man that wants to make a spectacle out of someone else's embarrassment. And that's exactly what they were doing. You did not need a battalion to do what they were about to do to Jesus. But nonetheless, they gather about 600 men to watch what's going on. And verse 17 says, And they clothed him in a purple cloak, which was the cloak of a king. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. It's a complete and total mockery. They had no idea that he truly was and is the King of the Jews. And yet the focus is not on what Jesus is saying here because... We know he doesn't say anything. But the focus is on what they were doing to him. Jesus had spoken about this. Jesus had also spoken to his disciples that if they wished to follow him, they would subject themselves to this very same thing. The mockery of the world. Verse 19 says, And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. It seems they had had their fun and they were now all done. Perhaps their arms were a little tired. Their fists were a little swollen. Their voices were a little hoarse. Their knees a little sore from paying homage to the one that they mockingly called the king of the Jews, though he truly was and is the king of the Jews. And so rather than kill him on the spot, they follow their orders and they hand him over and they lead him out to be crucified. And now back onto the scene comes the crowd. Verse 21 says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Why include those details? Why does it matter who Simon was the father of? Probably because Alexander and Rufus became Christians. And anyone reading this gospel could have went to them as an eyewitness to this entire thing and said, hey, did that really happen? And they would be able to say, yes, it happened exactly like Mark said it happened. Verse 22, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. In those days, that wine mixed with myrrh was their painkiller. 
It was their narcotic. But Jesus refused it. Because the Son of God would have his full faculties in order to lay down his life for the sins of his people. He needed all of his wits. You see, while the crowd and the soldiers and Pilate and the chief priests thought they were doing this to Jesus, the reality was that Jesus was allowing this to happen to himself. They were nothing more than pawns in the divine plan of God. So he would not take it. And verse 24 says, And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. We know from other accounts, they did this right at his feet. There he hangs on a cross, no clothes, and right at the bottom of his feet, feet that were pierced with a nail, Right at the bottom of his feet are the men casting lots, betting, gambling for pieces of his clothing. Verse 25 says, And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. You get the sense of what's going on. Everyone who was there, according to Mark, made fun of him, derided him, wagged their heads at him, treated him like he was nothing more than trash. And they mocked him and said to him, you who would destroy the temple in three days, come down from there. Little did they know he would rebuild that temple in three days because he wasn't talking about the physical temple. He said he was talking about his own body. And yet the Son of God would not seek justice for himself, but entrusted himself to the Father who judges justly. Verse 31, So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. They wanted to see him come down off of the cross in order to believe. He had done many miracles, countless miracles up until this point. They had seen all that they needed to see. That is if sight was enough to really believe in the Son of God. But physical sight is not enough. You need spiritual sight. Sight that is bestowed by God himself. And so we see the Son of God rejected, but then thirdly, we see the Son of God recognized. It seems that there was a man there whom God did give spiritual sight to. Verses 33 to 39 explain to us the moment of his death and the result of that. And they compelled, oh, excuse me, 
And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. On the cross then for six hours. From the third hour till the ninth hour. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness over the whole land, which should have been an indicator to them something is different about this crucifixion. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why was it dark? It was dark because in the mysterious way of God, in that moment, the Father turned his back on the Son. Because the Son became sin for us, the Scripture says. How do we explain that? I think the way I explained it is the best that we can get. How can we, finite creatures, explain the one who is infinite? How can we, creatures who have not only been made, but have been made and are trapped within the confines of time and space, how can we understand the one who made time and space, who fully exists outside of time and space, and yet who inserts himself into time and space? How can we possibly understand the mysteries of God? And so Jesus cries to the Father, why have you forsaken me? And yet, in his divinity, he knew exactly why it happened. It happened so that all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ could never again say to God, why have you forsaken me? Because the Father forsook the Son so that he would never forsake his children. Verse 35 says, And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. Elijah, you remember, went up into heaven without dying. And so it was sort of Jewish legend that Elijah would one day come back and he would help the righteous. And so essentially they're thinking to themselves, if this man really is righteous, then Elijah's going to come down and Elijah's going to help him. Which of course implies that Elijah is greater than the man that's hanging on the cross. You see, they just didn't get it. Verse 36, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come, down to, will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. They're watching the scene unfold. Typically, it takes much longer than this for someone to die on the cross. It was a long, excruciating process where one would die by asphyxiation, by suffocation with their own body. As they hung there with their arms pinned to the cross, their feet pinned at the bottom, their body slumped down, they would not be able to take enough air into their oxygen to feed that oxygen to the rest of their body. And so they would slowly over time die because they would not get enough oxygen. But 
that Jesus knew. As Matthew tells us, for instance, that the work was done, that it was finished, the price had been paid, and he could offer up his life now. So he breathes his last. And at that very moment, the curtain of the temple, we're not told which one. I tend to believe it was likely the curtain that was the between the holy place and the most holy place, though it could have been the curtain that blocked the Gentiles from coming into the place where only Jews were allowed to be. But the point of the temple curtain tearing is that God was communicating through action because no one else understood. God was communicating through action that Jesus Christ had opened up access to God. And that what the temple once stood for, Jesus Christ, the better temple, now stands for. And so this is what the Apostle Paul says. There is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so it tears from top to bottom. And then, verse 39 says, And when the centurion stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And so we see the Son of God recognized. This centurion would have seen many, many deaths by crucifixion. He was a centurion. He had climbed his way up in rank. This was not a private. This was not a rookie. This was a man who had been around the block. This was a man who knew how to get the job done when it came to crucifixion. And this was a man who had witnessed it many times over. And when he witnessed the crucifixion of this man on the cross, the way he, when he saw him breathe his last and yell out a loud cry, which was really impossible for anyone else to do because there would not have been enough oxygen left in their body. But when he saw him do that very thing, he was in awe and he simply could not help himself but to say to everyone else who is making fun of him, truly this man was the Son of God. You fools. And so we see the Son of God considered, but kicked to the curb. And we see the Son of God rejected, mocked, beaten, spit on, hung up, and ridiculed. And at the lowest point it seemed of the life of Jesus Christ, in the death of Jesus Christ, we have the recognition of the Son of God. The truest form of recognition of the identity of Jesus lies in his substitutionary death for sinners. There's a lot of people that like Jesus for what he can give to them or what they think he can give to them. But the only right way to recognize Jesus is as the one who paid for your sins. The one and the only one who is the way to the Father. 
This is the highest form of recognition of who he is. Jesus did a lot of amazing things that got a lot of attention. And this thing that he did got a lot of attention, but it was negative attention. The one that they had greeted a week earlier as a king, they now killed as a criminal. And yet it was in that moment that in Mark's gospel, the first human being acknowledged what Mark told them at the very beginning of the gospel, that this is the Son of God. 